0: For the Cardinals to have a contending rotation, how many starters should be better than Miles Michaelis in 2024? Plus, do the Cardinals have the best hitter in all of AA? Coming up on b Shave Daily. What's going on, everybody? And welcome in to this edition of B-Shape Daily. Brendan Schaefer back with you in the evening hours of Friday, August 25th, 2023. Cardinals take the loss tonight in Philadelphia. That's nothing new. Miles Michaelis on the hill. It's been a tough stretch of late for Miles, and that continued tonight as he gave up five runs over six innings of work for the Cardinals as the Phillies take the game 7-2, dropping the Cardinals back down to 17 games below five hundred as Michaelis drops to an 0-4 record for the month of August. Just has not been his month. 12 earned runs allowed over his past two outings, 16 Ernie's over his past three starts for the Cardinals. It's been rough. And it begs the question, where should Miles Michaelis slot into the 2024 rotation to give you, the Cardinals fan, confidence that this rotation will be a contending one? Because we spent a lot of time talking about, okay, the Cardinals need three starting pitchers. They seem to know that, as John Moselak has indicated, they will get three starting pitchers from outside the organization to form the starting five next year. But when we've been having those conversations, it's generally been with the idea that Miles Michaelis would be toward the front of the line, that the Cardinals would need to go out and get an ace probably, but that Miles Michaelis could slot as high as the number 2 in that rotation, but if you look at Michaelis's numbers this season, it's been his worst year as a Cardinal. He's had some good years as a St. Louis Cardinal no doubt, but His numbers at this point, I mean, there's a case to be made that those numbers are declining. Miles Michaelis just turned 35 years old this week. Has a two-year extension that he signed back in February. Where does Miles Michaelis slot into the rotation next year? Or rather, where should he slot in, Cardinals fans, to give you confidence that this rotation is indeed going to be reworked in such a way that will allow the Cardinals to go from A team that can sit here 17 games below five hundred in late August to a contender once again in 2024. It's August 25th right now, the famous date back in 2011 where the Cardinals were 10.5 games out. And, of course, rallied to make a wild card, win the World Series, all that good stuff. Yeah, that's not happening this year. I know the Cardinals are only like 11, 11 11.5 out of a wild card spot right now. I'm not even going to take the time to pull up the standings because it just doesn't matter. This Cardinals team is going nowhere fast. It's evident almost on a nightly basis watching this team. And again, we kind of figured that it would be that way after they decided to trade a good portion of the quality pitchers on the staff at the deadline to try and recoup younger players to perhaps restock that farm system for the future with an eye on 2024. Which also brings us to the second topic we're going to talk about tonight. If you're listening to B-Shape Daily on Spotify or Apple Podcast, you don't have to go anywhere. You'll get to hear about both topics right in the same spot. If you're listening on YouTube, which I'd love for you to do, even if you're not, head on over YouTube.com slash at b 12 and click subscribe on the channel. I'm going to split it up into two different videos because we've got two distinct topics to talk about tonight. Miles Michaelis, the question posed will be the first one. Go ahead and drop it in the comments with your thoughts on where Miles needs to land. One, two, three, four, or five in that Cardinals rotation for twenty twenty-four. And whatever your answer is, is essentially the challenge to John Mozalock to get X number of better pitchers than Miles Michaelis. I guess it would be N minus one, because Michaelis is obviously going to be in one of those spots. So if he's the fifth starter, which would be aggressive, but if he's the fifth starter. Five minus one, that means you think John Mozalek would need to go out and get four better starting pitchers. But what's that number for you? Try to be reasonable about it, but I think it's a fair question. With Miles Michael sitting now ERA above four and a half at four point six six for the season, that would be the highest that he's had as a Cardinal. But the other topic I want to get into relates back to that trade deadline where the Cardinals said, Hey, all this pitching, it's gotta go. All these short term contracts, they gotta go. We gotta get people that we're gonna have under control, restock for twenty twenty four and beyond. One of those deals the Cardinals made might have netted the team the best hitter in all of double-A baseball at this point in time. The Cardinals have a youngster in double-A that is absolutely in fuego, and he was up to his old tricks again on Friday night. We'll talk about who that player is and what we see as the future for him with the Cardinals. That's going to be in another video here on YouTube. It'll be the second half of this podcast if you're listening to B-Shape Daily on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Two different videos on YouTube. But let's go ahead and get into the first topic here, which is Miles Michaelis. What's that number gotta be in your mind, Cardinals fans? Because I would have said, I mean, coming into the season, when you knew Adam Wainwright was going to be retiring, you knew that Montgomery and Flaherty were free agents to be, Miles Michaelis looked like the the last man standing, the best remaining man standing. With Steven Matz also penciled into a spot in the rotation, assuming 2023 went well for him. And he had his own sort of roller coaster up and down, more like a down and up, and then back down with the injury this season. But well, you figure he's going to be part of that mix as well for next year. But Miles Michaelis, yeah, you know, you would have said, ah, he's a really solid number two if you're getting the most out of him that you expect to be able to do. Miles Michaelis, when he came to the Cardinals in 2018, was fantastic. 2.83 ERA through 200 innings not a huge strikeout guy and that kind of points to a lot of the issues I guess the Cardinals are having this year where they're looking for a lot more swing and miss and it's not that Miles Michael is the wrong type of pitcher last year he was an all-star as well just like in 2018 had some injured years between there with uh 2020 being completely washed out in 2021 a partial season for Miles Michael with the injuries but 2022 man last year he was great 3.29 ERA, another 200 inning season for Miles. 153 strikeouts. So in both of his quality years, strikeout not really a huge part of his game. Ks per nine in 2018 were six and a half, and in 2022, his other All Star campaign, 6.8. That's kind of the pitcher that Miles Michaelis has been over his career in the big leagues, even dating back before the Cardinals got him. Remember he went couple of years with the Padres and the Rangers, then went overseas, came back when the Cardinals signed him out of Japan, but he's a 6.6 career strikeout per nine guy in Major League Baseball, and when you don't strike out a lot of guys, you do leave yourself susceptible to some bad luck, and I guess you could say that Miles Michaelis has had that this year, because when you look at his FIP, Fielding Independent Pitching, 3.99 this season, despite... Well, I guess it may not be 3.99 anymore. I'm looking at Baseball Reference, which has not updated his stats following tonight's game. But let's assume it's right around 4.0. But the ERA is 4.66. So he has been unlucky. Unless his FIP jumped almost a full run tonight, I'm going to assume it didn't go up all that much. His ERA went up by 0.11. His FIP is probably around 4.0, 4.1. The ERA, a solid half run higher. But last year... It's just so interesting how... And again, I've not always been heavy into FIP. I said, you know, I'm not one of them FIPsters. But that was largely back when, first of all, no pitch clock, no shift ban, and the Cardinals had gold glovers at every position on their infield defense, essentially. So when I used to think about guys like Dakota Hudson, I made the claim that, you know, I know his FIP is much higher than his ERA most years, pretty much every year until 2022. But I also figured that could be sustainable for Dakota Hudson for as long as he's a St. Louis Cardinal. But we've seen the Cardinals edge defensively decline, in part due to maybe inconsistency from the players that were previously great, which I don't put a lot of stock into that. I think Goldschmidt's still a good first baseman defensively. Arenado is still a great third baseman defensively the first half of the year, notwithstanding. He's more than made up for it since then. He's locked back in since right around the All-Star break, I would say. But up the middle, you've had Kind of a revolving door at shortstop. Hopefully Mason Wynn is the guy that can settle that position down for the Cardinals. But you had DeYoung. Well, first you had Edmund, and then it was DeYoung, and then kind of a mix of both. And now Mason Wynn. And second base, you know, you haven't had consistency there either. Donovan's a gold glover there. Edmund was once a gold glover there. Donovan, of course, winning the gold glove for the utility role. Edmund, former gold glover at second, when he got time there, you figured that would be fine. But then you see a lot more Nolan Gorman this year as well, and as much as we like Nolan Gorman, he's the lesser of the three, the least of the three, in terms of defensive prowess at second base. So this infield defense that once was for the Cardinals not as consistent as it used to be, which is why a guy like Dakota Hudson, you see those struggles happen last year, in part due to it's just the FIP catching up to him. But now this year it has been, I think, exemplified even further with a guy like Miles Michaelis where you add in the changing of the guard defensively where it's just not the same consistent group that it was. But I think even more of an impact has been the ban on the shift because the Cardinals had maybe the biggest edge in Major League Baseball, and I'm saying that anecdotally. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it sure seems that way when you think back to how the Cardinals, and, and Ollie Marmol has talked about this as well, they did a really good job of being able to position their defenders effectively and get the most out of the, the defensive positioning that they utilized and it's not that they can't still make strides toward doing that, but you're you're hampered, you're limited by the nature and the scope of that rule, which I think affects a guy like Miles Michaelis as much as it as much as it perhaps impacts any pitcher in Major League Baseball. So it's so interesting that his FIP this year around 4.0. Last year it was 3.87 with a 3.29 ERA. So about a half a run better in the ERA last year than the FIP, and this year it's been the exact opposite, about a half a run worse in ERA than his FIP, which is essentially the way it's honestly supposed to work out. It kind of just normalizes over the course of time. You expect over the long haul, your FIP and your ERA generally to kind of align with one another because the more you pitch, the more luck is going to even out for you. And it's interesting to see that with Miles Michaelis, 3.85 career ERA, 3.97 career FIP. That's about in line with what you might reasonably expect. But Miles Michaelis, does seem to be more susceptible to struggles not only the rest of the season, but moving forward into 2024 because of where he is on the age curve. He just turned 35 years old, and while he doesn't rely on overpowering stuff, striking guys out, he's a pitch-to-contact pitcher, and that generally you'd think could be something that works okay as you age. But is it going to be enough for Miles Michaelis to still be considered the number Two in the Cardinals rotation. What about the number three in a contending rotation for 2024, or is even that too lofty of a goal? Because John Mozeliak certainly has his work cut out for him, as we know, with this offseason needing to restock a rotation that is basically bereft of the type of talent that they believe should stock a contending rotation. Cardinals fans seem to feel that way as well. Guys like Zach Thompson, they're gonna—he's gonna have a shot to contribute in some way or another in 2024. Maybe it's as the sixth starter. Maybe it's as the number five starter because John Moselock says, hey, we're going to get three guys, but maybe they don't. Maybe it doesn't go the way that he hopes, which I would consider to be a pretty big risk. It's why it makes it a little bit curious the way the Cardinals, and they've done this in the past. This is not a new trend for them, but announce exactly what they intend to do and what they need going into an offseason so that everybody is aware of it and can essentially hold you accountable to that. In a year like last offseason, it works really well because they got Wilson Contreras, they spent up for him, and they can puff their chest out and say, look, we spent $87.5 million. See, we told you catcher was our biggest need, and we, we went out and filled it. Other offseasons, thinking back over the past decade or so, there have been multiple times where the onus has been on the team to get an outfielder. And they announce it. And they say, we're going to, we need a new center fielder or we need a corner outfield bat with power. You can think back to the various off seasons of Marcelo Zuna, Dexter Fowler, like the additions that were made typically came after John Moselak got in front of a camera and a microphone and said, we need this position. and, And that's our goal to fill it in the off season, which is great candor. It's wonderful transparency. fan base, I think, appreciates it because they then kind of know what to expect. But it also seems like the Cardinals have made their best moves and have had their best off-seasons when they haven't been so forthright in explaining exactly what they're planning to do. Like, a lot of Cardinals fans were on pins and needles hoping that a, a move for a guy like Paul Goldschmidt could happen when they acquired him in, what was that, the off-season between 2018 and 2019? I believe it was make that trade happen under the cover of darkness. Bam. That's exciting stuff. Nolan Aranato deal. What was so exciting about it is the Cardinals didn't come out and say, yes, we're looking for a third baseman and it's going to happen. You give away a certain amount of leverage. I think when you announce that to the public. So in those trades, the Cardinals were able to operate under their circumstances and make sure they got a deal that worked for them. But free agency, man, it seems like it's always going the other direction because they're out there saying, this is what we need to do, which again, you can't really hide from it. When you look at the rotation right now, filled with retiring Adam Wainwright, Zach Thompson, Dakota Hudson, who have, you know, various levels of belief behind them. Matthew Libertor before the injury. Now Drew Rahm is in that group. Steven Matz before the injury. And Michaelis just hanging out there as the one guy that you go, okay, they have signed him to be a starter for next year. So he's going to be in that group it's pretty evident looking at the group right now that there are some holes that need to be filled, but it's interesting to go on record and say three is the number that we're going to, that we see as a need and three is the number that we're going to get where that puts John Moselak in, in terms of his ability to follow through on those expectations remains to be seen. But as it pertains to miles Michaelis, I think it's really interesting because they could get three starters and have miles Michaelis be the number one, right? They could, sign somebody to a multi-year deal but not one of the big guns that you're hoping they'll get not a franchise record-setting free agent contract the type that I honestly think they'll need to sign somebody to if you're going after Aaron Nola he's breaking the Wilson Gutierrez record of 87 and to a free agent who had not previously played for the organization that's what we're talking about when it's talking about trying to get an ace for next year but maybe they don't do that and then maybe they trade for somebody but it's it's not the big trade that you're looking for, but technically, it's a guy with some major league starting experience, and they plug him into the rotation, and maybe they sign somebody else off of a, you know, like a one year deal, like a prove it deal or something like that. And suddenly, you're going, all right. Technically, they followed through; they got three guys like they said they would. But fans would be in an uproar because they could say, I mean, those three guys are equivalent to Hudson, Thompson, Libertor. What I mean, what did you even bother for? You had that internally. That's why I think it's so important for the Cardinals not only to get three guys, but to get guys that are better than what they already have. You expect a guy like Hudson to basically be what he's been, which, by the way, not that terrible over the course of his big league career, like a 360 ERA. We'll see him on Saturday, I believe. But the Cardinals, again, kind of like with Miles Michaelis, you look at it and say defensive advantage for a pitch to contact pitcher not what it once was, and, and Hudson doesn't have even really the stuff historically that Miles Michaelis has shown. So you worry about plugging a guy like Hudson back into your rotation for 2024, unless, what's the unless, what's the caveat that I've given? It's two things. Strikeout rates got to go up, and more consistently than every couple of weeks, you have a seven strikeout performance, but in between, it's 2Ks, 3Ks, and you're walking basically as many guys as you K in those games. And then the other part is the walks. You have got to lower the walk rate. And if Dakota Hudson could do those two things, I'll be first in line to give him a shot or to advocate in the offseason that he deserves a shot. But I think you've got to see that consistently, and you're sort of running out of stretch in the calendar to be able to do that with with vigor and to know that it's something worth standing behind and believing in. It's got to be consistent off the sheet the rest of the year, or you just say, ah, eh, kind of fluky. Yeah, the ERA looks pretty nice, but we've seen that before. Who's to say he's not going to backslide into the 2022 version of Hudson? if the, the FIP and the Babbitt luck doesn't go in his way? Fair questions, and it's why I think the Cardinals are lukewarm at best on the idea of mentally diving back in on strongly considering Hudson for a role in the rotation next year. He seems like a potential trade candidate to me, and I, I do believe he deserves to be in a starting rotation in Major League Baseball. To me, he is one of the 150 best Major League-ready starters on the planet. Call me crazy, but I think Dakota Hudson... A lot of Cardinals fans sell him short because for, you know, reasons that I don't think are wrong or unfair, they're kind of, they've got Dakota Hudson fatigue in many ways, but it doesn't mean he's a a terrible player or a terrible pitcher. But I think if you're the Cardinals, having just endured this type of season in very loudly proclaiming that, you know, you have to approach pitching differently in 2024, I don't think it's a, a fit for Dakota Hudson. If we just see more of the same, even if that leads to a good ERA the rest of the way. I don't think that necessarily fits in line from a schematic standpoint for what the Cardinals are looking to address and do differently in 2024. So you kind of know what you would get there. Zach Thompson, I think, does have that type of upside. You want to see it more consistently, and and he has, of the three, really been, and I'm, I'm including Dakota in this as well, Dakota, Libertor, and Zach Thompson, which I realize Libby's on the IL right now, but of those three sort of, candidates that were being bestowed a starting spot to just kind of see what they do with the runway the rest of 2023. Thompson has really been the most consistent. You want to see him be a little bit more efficient to take advantage of staying in those games longer, getting deeper into games, and the strikeout stuff that he has showed has been pretty good. So maybe you give him a little bit of credence. And even if Libertor were to return healthy and flash the Tampa Bay upside, I'm talking about the eight scoreless innings that he had against the Rays. If he could do that consistently, then he would get some credence as well. But he just has been the least consistent of the group. You see one flash of brilliance and then multiple duds in a row. Maybe injury was related to that. He said it was lifting weights that tweaked the back. So not really reading into, uh, because I asked Ollie Marmol about that. I said, how did he get hurt actually? Because the velocity obviously was, I didn't even have to say it. and He said, From what I understand, it happened in between the two starts or after his initial start there against Oakland. I think it was Oakland. And that's not the reason the velocity declined. You'd have to ask him, though. So reporters went and asked him, and he said it was a weightlifting thing, which I guess would have been like the next day after Libby had started. And then, obviously, they thought he would start Wednesday and didn't, so they put him on the injured list. We'll see when we see him again. But anyway, of the three, Zach Thompson's been the one that you would say, all right, if I had the most confidence in Thompson of that group going into the offseason, do I still want to give him the five spot in the rotation? The answer to me is no, not because of anything about Zach Thompson, but because of the fact that you're going to get one of those other starters injured in spring training, and then Zach Thompson, you're more comfortable sliding him into your five spot after you've already kind of suffered some attrition. If he's your number six going into camp, and he stays that way by having a good camp, then he probably ends up on your opening day roster as your number five starter when somebody else gets hurt. That's sort of the mindset that I think the Cardinals need to have and have Libertor, have Hudson, if he's still on the roster and in the organization, vying for that number six spot as well. Whoever earns that spot out of spring, that's your number six until he inevitably becomes your number five. If I'm pessimistic about it and you don't really think that's reasonable, Go back through time and you'll see that I'm 100% correct. A-, a cardinal starter gets injured in spring training every single year. So sorry to be the bearer of bad news on that. But my point with all of this is, well, the Cardinals are going to have their work cut out for them, acquiring good pitchers. One probably will have to break that free agent record for a Cardinal of $87.5 million. Can they trade somebody or trade for somebody, I should say? Yeah, maybe, but you're talking about giving up a position player that you don't want to trade away. But maybe that's how they can get a number one and a number two in the same offseason without just blowing $150, 200000000 on a pair of pitchers. And it's not that I don't think Cardinals fans would say, hey, no, do that. That sounds good to a lot of Cardinals fans. I just don't think realistically it's what the Cardinals have done historically. Then again, maybe that's what John Mozeliak means by we know we have to approach this differently. He's said that multiple times. So it is a little bit of a mystery to me what actually that is going to entail for the Cardinals. And it makes it kind of fun and exciting. But if you're a pessimist about it, you say, yeah, I'm not so fun and excited about it. I'm already seeing the writing on the wall of exactly what's going to happen. And then we're going to talk to John Moselak in January at winter warmup. And he's going to sell it on why it's actually really fun and great. And Cardinals fans are going to go, no, this is the same song and dance. Oh boy, we're doomed. And the Cardinals fans might be right at this point. Because last winter warmup, the whole deal was John Moselak saying, We didn't really delve into those pitching, starting pitching markets too heavily. And perhaps that ends up being a strategic mistake. Those are his words verbatim. And he said, hopefully, our hope is that it's not considered a mistake and that we do have enough pitching. Clearly, they didn't have enough pitching, and he's had to wear that. He's had to do the mea culpa, and he's done it to his credit. He said, you know, we were wrong. We thought we had more pitching depth than we proved to have had, and we got it wrong. Granted, a lot of Cardinals fans kind of knew it in January, kind of knew it in December. Is what it is. You move on. But they know, I think, that they can't do it that way again and try and spin their way into depth and say, well, if you you squint and you close your right eye completely and you spin around to make yourself a little bit dizzy, now suddenly you can say nice things about all these pitchers and why it's enough. The depth is enough. And I think as depth pieces, some of these pitchers are nice to have around. But if you're relying on them as your number three, your number four, and your number five starters – it gives a completely different look to a rotation. It's no longer a contending rotation. It's a rotation built on hope, love, and rainbows. I mean, that's what they had this year. And the problem was they spent money to do it. They were paying all five of the starters this year. I know Cardinals say, spend up. Or fans, I should say, spend up. That's kind of the rallying cry, and they're right. But it's always going to be spend up on the right guys. Because they were multi-million dollar salaries for everybody in the rotation michaelis mats wainwright wainwright was making 17.5 and then even jack flaherty was you know final year of arb same thing for montgomery who had like a 10 million dollar salary in the final year of arb so they were all getting paid which is kind of why john Mozilla probably felt he couldn't go to the free agent pitchers out there and offer a big contract or even, a. I think they probably weren't going to offer a big contract, but I bet they tried to do some medium-sized contracts. As Moselock, even though he said in January, we didn't really delve into those markets, radio interviews and different interviews since then, he said, well, really nobody that we were after, either all those guys are hurt now, so it's a good thing we didn't get them, or they they didn't really see an opportunity with the Cardinals. the The opportunity that we were pitching to them didn't really make sense to them because they saw we were paying five starters which, yeah, exactly, which is why I said all last off season, you need to trade from your pitching depth and the, the starting rotation pieces that are on the 40-man roster. You need to move a couple of those guys out. But they didn't do that. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's not that the whole season wasn't relatively predictable. Nobody, I wouldn't have predicted it to go this poorly, but you could at least understand where the trauma was going to come from, the trouble was going to come from, and it was from that pitching group, and M- Moselak. they thought they had it handled, and they, they did not. And I think they kind of used some wishful thinking to think it was handled because to do anything else would have been very difficult. It would have been a complicated process, to use a a former buzzword of the, the Pobo. It would have been complicated to say, yeah, we've got these five guys we're paying, but I was advocating for it at the time. I said, trade Jack Flaherty or Jordan Montgomery now in November or December in order to... Recoup a prospect or two. You don't have to trade him for anybody that's going to help your big league team as long as you then turn around and sign a starter. But granted, the way it panned out, Montgomery and Flaherty were two of the good starters that they did have and were worth something to the deadline. So that wouldn't have been the the complete easy answer, but they they took out the ability to trade Michaelis when they decided to re sign him, which was also kind of telegraphed. We figured that would be a very Cardinals type of move to make but now we're wondering with Michael is just touching age 35 as of the 23rd of August that was Wednesday is he going to be the same guy in 2024 and if he is the same guy that he is right now is that enough because he's 0-4 in August he's got a 4.66 ERA for the season again I think he's had some bad luck even tonight some doubles that dink in at 69 miles per hour on the exit velocity end up killing you but there were some hits that also the exit velocity was much higher so it's not always something you can attribute to bad luck. But I think Miles Michaelis, man, at best, to answer the question that I posed at the top of this podcast, and I want to hear your guys' thoughts in the YouTube comments section as well. To me, he's your number three at best. And I only say that because I realistically just don't see a world in which the Cardinals go out and acquire three starters better that project to be better than Miles Michaelis. It's almost like I'm handicapping it knowing that I, I maybe I should be a little more you know, brimstone and fire when it comes to the Cardinals and having expectations and demands of what they should do. But realistically, they're paying Miles Michaelis, what is he making, like eighteen million a year? They're just not gonna be able to muster three guys that are that project to be better than that. They they might sign somebody for one year eight million and he ends up being a diamond in the rough and out pitching Michaelis. That's possible. But just your most median reasonable expectation for what you're getting is they're not going to go in slotting Miles Michaelis as anything lower than the number three. Is that enough in your mind for the Cardinals to have a contending rotation? I guess it depends on who they go out and get, and we're going to spend a lot of time in the offseason debating and discussing that very topic. But do you sign an Aaron Nola and one of the guys out of Japan? Do you spend like that? If you do, you go Nola, Shota Imanaga, who I think is generally considered the "quote unquote" cheaper of the two big arms coming out of Japan this year. If Imanaga is your number two, Michaelis is your three. Who's your four? Is it a is it a trade for Tyler Glass now? Where you maybe you only have to give up like, and, and, and here's the thing: I wouldn't do this trade, but just to give you an example, because I don't want to say Juan Yepes, and because everybody's gonna go deal, and then Rays fans are gonna go, "You're crazy! There's no way Tampa does that." And I'm not trying to get into one of those kind of things. But like if I said Alec Burleson for Tyler Glass now, I don't think the Cardinals do that trade, just so we're clear. They seem to be very high on Alec Burleson. I'm not even saying the Cardinals should do that trade. Tyler Glass now is very aptly named. Glasnow broken later. The guy does get injured a lot, and so it would be a gamble. But if you're gambling with some prospects or a couple of pieces that Tampa happens to like, And so you know they'll turn into perennial All-Stars because Tampa never loses a trade. But from the Cardinals, maybe it's depth that you can afford to trade away. Do you have interest in a glass now because he's upside as your number four in your rotation? Or maybe he would be the number three, and that bumps Michaelis to four and defeats my entire premise. But like those are the types of moves that need to happen if the Cardinals are going to have the contending rotation that they claim they think they can have. Because if they can't, I don't know what Nolan is doing here either. I've had Cardinals fans say, well, why does he demand a trade? I think it's because he's given the uh, the opportunity to the front office to fix it in the offseason because he believes, you know, this is where he wanted to be. So, all right, we're going to talk this up to one bad year, but you're going to fix it now, right? That means spending. That makes, means making savvy trades. But if it doesn't look any different by June of next year, sayonara. Yeah, Arenado would demand a trade at that point, and I couldn't blame him. Goldsmith would be out the door with him pending what happens between now and February in terms of Goldie with an extension. I have no idea what that's going to look like. I have maintained Goldsmith, you know, should be a Cardinal for as long as he wants to be playing baseball because I believe that he will age gracefully. I understand that he's been kind of slumping here and there throughout the last six weeks or so, maybe even longer if people are looking up the baseball reference game log. But I still feel like Paul Goldschmidt's Paul Goldschmidt, and that's just one of the tenets to which I I cling. And so if I'm wrong about that, I'm wrong about that. But that's sort of the way I view the world. But, yeah, those guys don't want to be around for a multi-year rebuild. So if this thing doesn't get fixed in a jiffy in the offseason, yeah, there will be a lot of questions about the viability of the core that is in place for this team and whether or not the front office that is in place for this team can build around that core Effectively, in order to make sure they win enough games to make the playoffs and make runs toward the World Series before that core ages out. It's a lot, but it's kind of what the Cardinals have set themselves up to have to do this offseason because they've said we're going to contend in 2024. I think the lineup is there. I know that sounds crazy because they had the final 21 batters that came to the plate tonight were retired. They can't hit a lick right now. Only Marmo would say that they're, they're so competitive and it's fine. I you know, I think Ollie Marmel's great. I know Cardinals fans don't, but I just you're seeing signs of a team that's just sort of laying down at times right now. And I, I know the Cardinals manager would disagree with me on that, but I I would challenge his team to get a hit within twenty one batters to finish the game if they're truly grinding the way that they they would if it was uh, you know, ten games above five hundred, you're you're fighting for a division championship. You know, it's just a results based business at a certain point. So you do want to see more of that to continue claiming that, yeah, this is a great offense, don't worry, it'll all fall into place next year. I, I tend to think that it will, but I also think it's it's fair to demand or at least say, hey, let's see some signs of that the rest of the way more consistently in order to feel good about you know kind of finding that rhythm going into the offseason. I, I still think that is important, so we'll kind of see the way that shapes up. But the pitching we know is going to be the biggest need and the biggest question at this point for the Cardinals where does Miles Michaelis fit in in your mind to the 2024 rotation? One, two, three, four, or five? Where does he need to be? You can you can predict in the comments on YouTube where you think he's going to be, but then let me know where you think he needs to be slotted in in order for the Cardinals' rotation to be considered a genuine threat as a contender. Speaking of a genuine threat, perfect segue into our next topic. Let's talk about Thomas Sajc, shall we? The Cardinal Double A superstar who is lighting things up in the Texas league ever since the Cardinals picked him up at the trade deadline. So has been going Hamburglar. I believe he hit for the cycle earlier this month with the Springfield Cardinals. He has just ridiculous numbers that I'll read for you here in a moment. But tonight was another incredible game for JC who hit two home runs, including a three run bomb four RBIs on the night to increase his OPS for the season in double A to nine fifty four, but that doesn't even fully go to appreciate what he's done since coming over to the Cardinal organization, which by the way, that was the trade that sent Jordan Montgomery and Chris Stratton to Texas. He was a Texas Rangers prospect with an eight ninety one OPS in the double A level with Frisco. Comes to the Cardinals, stays at the double A level, thought there was a chance they might promote him to Springfield or pardon me, to Memphis. To begin his time with the organization, it didn't happen, and now it seems as though the only reason to to not have him in Memphis yet is in case they're trying to win a championship in Double A because he's one of their best players, if not their best player. Thomas the JC has a 12.34 OPS with the Cardinals organization, with Double A Springfield, in now 22 games over 82 at bats. He's got nine home runs in those 82 at bats, 20 RBIs. He's hitting 366 with a 454 on base and a 780 slugging percentage. That's right, an OPS over 1,200 for Thomas JC the infielder that came over in the trade with the Texas Rangers, Chris Stratton, Jordan Montgomery, go to Texas. Remember John Moselak said pitching, pitching, pitching was the plan at that trade deadline. And then I asked him, I said, what do you think about this JC guy? Which I don't think that I pronounced it correctly when I asked the question because I didn't yet know how to say his name. It is Sejaci, though. 21-year-old. He's listed on the MILB website as a shortstop. I think he plays more second base, but he can play around the infield, described kind of like Brendan Donovan. When I asked John Moselak, what do you like about this guy? They said, well, we know we needed pitching, and in the deals that the Cardinals were able to make that day because that was the same day the Jordan Hicks deal was made, Moselak basically said, we covered some of the pitching needs that we had, Obviously, still had more to go, and, and on the deadline day with the Jack Flaherty deal, they ended up recouping uh, or, or bringing in even more pitching as part of that trade. But with what the Rangers had to offer, like I said, we were just trying to maximize talent in general in this deal for Montgomery and for Stratton. And so J.C. was a guy that certainly fit the billing on that. Infielder who can play lots of different positions and maybe has a lot more power than the Cardinals even Ever could have dreamed. I mean, this guy's only been in the organization for a little less than a month already with nine home runs with St. Louis. He is out of his mind right now in double A. Certainly seems like he would qualify for triple A. 21 years old. Again, I think that's really the only reason that he's not in triple A yet. Every tweet I send about the guy, I just say Memphis, 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 Memphis. Like it's time for the promotion, right? See what he can do down the stretch because then maybe he's only just one step away from the big league roster next year being able to help out in St. Louis. But it was kind of funny. The Springfield Cardinals Twitter account replied to me with just a, a gif that said, shush, <laughs> they don't want to give up Thomas to JC just yet. Yeah, they enjoy the guy. They haven't even had him for a month. And I keep trying to take him away by stumping for the Cardinals to send him to AAA Memphis. But this is an exciting player. And honestly, with the way that he's performing, maybe the best hitter in all of double A. Like I said, a 954 OPS for the season is not the best mark in the Texas league. But for anybody who's played more than 70 games, it is Ryan Bliss, I think is with double A Amarillo. I don't really know who Ryan Bliss is. I just know that he's played in 68 games with a 1,008 OPS this season. And he's now looked like he has been promoted to triple A Tacoma with the Seattle Mariners, 23-year-old prospect for them. So other than him, for guys that have played even, you know, 25 games this year, you're basically looking at Thomas Sejaci being right there in the mix for one of the best hitters in the Texas league. But with the Cardinals specifically, it's like he has transcended and gone to a new level with an OPS better than 1,200. I got some questions about what's the JC's incredible run means as far as how the Cardinals might plan their offseason trades that they could have to make and I honestly don't think there's too much of an impact there but it does sort of go to show that the Cardinals do have depth when it it comes to infielders and I think they added to that depth at the trade deadline and maybe it does change their mindset a little bit to say "All right, who's got the most value it's the proven guys like Tommy Edmond and Brendan Donovan that's the kind of guy we've got to trade to get a legitimate starting pitcher in our rotation for 2024, and we can backfill with a Sejaci or a Cesar Prieto coming up into the fold next year. Prieto, I, I believe he was a little banged up at AAA, but one of those Luis Araiz types, he comes over in the Flaherty deal. Again, an infielder, I think primarily a second baseman, maybe not even a plus glove for Prieto, but can absolutely hit as a contact hitter. Could Prieto and Sejaci be kind of the next layer, the next level of Cardinal utility players that kind of allows the team to be a little creative with the group that they have now? I know that's the connection, those dots, a lot of Cardinals fans are trying to put together. I'm going to say pump the brakes a little bit on that, for one, because we don't know what these guys could do or will do at the major league level. But for another thing, like Brendan Donovan, really good player. I would not trade Brendan Donovan if you're asking me Donovan or Nolan Gorman, you're not going to maybe like my answer. I would keep Brendan Donovan if I was given a choice between the two. And I think you should keep both players unless you're just absolutely blown away by an offer that fixes your rotation. Remember at the deadline when people were talking about don't trade Gorman. Why would you even say that? Said, listen to what I'm actually saying. I'm not advocating to trade Nolan Gorman by any means, but if you can get Logan Gilbert and Matt Brash for Nolan Gorman, yeah, I'd have to listen to that. I'd have to think about that because It transforms the Cardinals roster at a position that they just don't have the strength in pitching, and you retain, what, a really quality group at second base when it comes to Donovan, potentially Edmund pitching in there. He'll have to sort of back up Mason Wynn at shortstop or waiting to see if Mason Wynn can take that job and run with it, be the guy for 2024 as is expected of him. But then you've got guys like Sejaci and Prieto that I think can backfill Do they have the power of Nolan Gorman? No. Nobody in the organization really has the raw, unadulterated power that Nolan Gorman has, but positionally you think about the flexibility there, yeah, he might be the only kind of guy that can net you legitimate pitching in this offseason if you were to make that kind of trade, and there is the lingering back issue for Gorman that you kind of wonder, like, is that just going to be something he deals with forever, and if it ends up getting worse as he gets older. Like, he's only 23, 24 years old. Maybe if, if you were a little concerned about that internally, but another team might not be so worried about it long-term, maybe you maximize Gorman's value via trade. But it's got to be for just an absolute, the blockbuster of Major League Baseball in the offseason. And I just don't know if that's a reasonable expectation to have for a trade. So you probably hang on to it. But I'm hanging on to Brendan Donovan as well. But that doesn't mean that I'm not excited about what Sejaci brings to the table an OPS over 1200 it's just one month but it's been very impressive and for the season a 950 OPS for a 20 21 year old at the AA level 24 home runs and 98 RBIs on the season across his time with the Texas Rangers and with the Cardinals organization has stolen 10 bases hitting 323 with a 393 on base and a 954 OPS just really really good stuff from CJ who i mean again, you kind of think, oh, he's going to be a a batting average on-base percentage kind of guy, and that may be true at the next level, but at this level, he's got a home run swing. There's no doubt about that, to hit 24 home runs in uh, 449 at-bats the way that he has. This dude might be a more elite hitter than I think we realized, and when you're checking out the Cardinals uh, prospect list, he's a guy that I think is probably going to get bumped up when you get into the offseason, when they do the offseason update. I'm looking at MLB pipeline right now. Here's the way they've got it ranked. Mason Wynn, Tink Hence, Chase Davis, who is the Cardinals' first round pick this uh over this summer Victor Scott, who went all the way up from like 26 up to number 4 in the organization. He's a guy that legitimately has 80-90 stolen base potential in a given MLB season. Like what he's doing in the minor leagues is ridiculous and uh he's at A right now, left-handed swinger, great defensive center fielder. So Victor Scott up at number four. Takoa Roby comes over to the Cardinals at the deadline as well. And he's a guy that we haven't really gotten to see him pitch yet. But I think he's actually making his debut for Springfield on Saturday after having some shoulder issues, I believe it was, earlier this year and has been ramping up from that, even dating back to when the Cardinals traded for him, was still in the process of rehabbing their high upside pitcher that also came over in that Jordan Montgomery-Chris Stratton deal. So you talk about maybe a deal that we look back on and say, for two months of Montgomery, who's been great for Texas, there's no doubt, but the Cardinals didn't have use for a rental pitcher in this season where they just weren't going anywhere. And then Chris Stratton, just two months of those guys apiece to pick up Sejaci and Takoa Roby. We'll see what Roby turns into if he can stay healthy. But that could end up being an absolute smash of a trade by John Moselak the longer this thing plays out. But nevertheless, as I was getting into, was trying to take a look at the Cardinals prospect rankings. I got kind of caught up on Takoa Roby, who's number five. And then they go Grisefo, number six. Gordon Grisefo for the Cardinals uh, in AAA this year. Cooper Jerpy, who was their first round pick last year, left-handed pitcher. Sam Robertsa, who has uh, elevated to AAA. I know his first outing there wasn't super strong. I want to see if I can get an update on what he's done since then. That was uh, a guy that came over in the Jordan Hicks deal, I believe it was. Um, four outings this point for Memphis. Roberson, uh, I'll never say his name right. Roberson, uh, I believe is right, uh, has struggled a little bit. So we'll kind of see as he continues. That's his first taste of AAA in his career, but had solid numbers at A. He's got a nine ERA right now and 15 innings for AAA. But then number nine on that list is Sejasey. And I'm thinking he's going to lap some of these pitchers in the offseason. I could see him passing Robertsa for sure. Cooper Jerpey probably as well. Uh, although Jerpy, it's kind of hard to compare because he's just in the lower level of the minors. I believe he's still at A ball. Let's go ahead while we're on the subject. 22 years old. He's at high A. Has spent the entire season at high A. 3.66 ERA. It's so strange when you draft a college pitcher and it's like, okay, he's at high A, but now he's he's 22 years old. When does he get bumped up? I'd say Jerpy for sure to Springfield next year, but there's the Cardinals are so intriguingly careful with their collegiate, even their collegiate pitchers, but especially the high school ones. Uh, jerpy just 39 innings. I think he's had some injuries that he's dealt with this year, which is part of it, but he threw over 100 innings last year. So I think they got to start letting that guy eat if healthy, but he has dealt with some injuries, and he's on the IL right now in the minors, which kind of explains some of that. But uh, good numbers for Jerpy. But I would say with some of the injuries and things, JC probably up to number seven. And uh, Mason Wynn presumably will graduate, but not until next year. So he'll probably still be on the prospect list in the offseason. But I could see JC man, as high as number six or eight, maybe even number five next year, given the way that he's playing right now. So that's a guy that's going to be on the radar for sure for MLB top 100 in the off season too. Um and he'll be in AAA next year and, and knocking on the door of the big leagues. I, I think certainly a possibility if JC continues to develop the way that he has to see him make his MLB debut in 2024 at some point. But yeah, the organizational depth is really strong when it comes to that position player group. Are the Cardinals going to get to a point where they say we've got enough in the chamber in order to go ahead and trade one of the guys that we do have for the thing that we don't have, which is pitching? It's going to be a fascinating conversation. Each individual name I look at, I go, nah, you shouldn't trade that guy. You shouldn't trade that guy. And then Tommy Edmond, guy that I think you definitely should want to hang on to, but could also understand if the value is right in a trade. I don't know if you can even afford to do that if you're counting on him to be your center fielder because that's he's played a lot of center field of late. I have no idea what the Cardinals are going to do. I want to do like a full-fledged episode of B-Shape Daily on the outfield. Because I think an overhaul is and probably should be coming. But at the same time, are the Cardinals going to have the guts and then the ability to execute to not only clear out some of the roster glut, but then make sure that whatever replaces that glut is is used effectively in order to get the outfield to a place that they just have not been able to get it in recent years. I think that's a topic of conversation. But Tommy Evans' name is in that mix as well. If they consider him more outfield than infield, based on the depth that they have across that infield, especially when you get Brendan Donovan back, Nolan Gorman, we know Mason Wynn is now here. A lot to get to on that front. But what do you think about Thomas Jacey? Is he the best hitter in AA? And hopefully the next hitter to AAA is the Cardinals. Certainly may have gotten a good one when it comes to the 21-year-old utility infielder. Listed as a shortstop on MILB, but I think he's going to be more second base, can probably play a little third. Um, be great if he could play some shortstop as well, even in fill-in duty. But, man, you got to love the power and just the the sheer bat handling ability from Thomas Sejaci that we're seeing play out for Springfield. Another two-home run day for Sejaci as he just continues to rake since the Cardinals got him from the Texas Rangers. That, though, is going to do it for this edition of Be Safe Daily. Appreciate you guys, as always, for listening. If you're listening on YouTube, make sure you circle back Catch the beginning of the episode where we talked a lot about Miles Michaelis and that 2024 starting rotation. Hit subscribe on this channel, like on this video, and let me know your thoughts about the Cardinals, Michaelis, the J.C., whatever else below. Appreciate you guys as always. We'll talk to you next time on Be Safe Daily. Peace.